You're listening to Mystery Still Unsolved, a podcast where we discuss unsolved mysteries both past and present. I'm your host, Rochelle. Today we will discuss the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. everyone. Um, If you're new, welcome, welcome. So excited to have you. And if you're a longtime listener, then welcome back. Can you believe it? We survived January. Was that not the quickest but longest January that you've ever experienced in your entire life? Every day I check the calendar and be like, oh my gosh, is it January 28th again? I could have sworn we lived that day like five times already. I totally felt like Bill Murray in the movie Groundhog's Day. Now that it's finally February, hallelujah, I'm so excited to host a little Valentine's Day series for you this month. All of the cases that we cover will have some sort of association with Valentine's Day. Maybe they happened around Valentine's Day or they're about a love triangle or lovers scorned. I don't know. I'm not going to give away anything. You're just going to have to wait and see. Just a few bits of housekeeping and news before we go ahead and get started. If you're not already following me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved, uh, you should be. Why? Oh, I'll tell you why. If you were following me on Instagram, then and only then would you already know about my giveaway. So if you're new or you forgot, I have always said that I would host a giveaway when we reached 100 followers, and we actually did so about a month ago, and I never hosted one. So now we're doing one. Yay! How do you enter? Okay, so you're going to need to go to my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. Make sure that you're following. After you hit that follow button, go to my stories, and there is where you'll find the instructions on how to enter the giveaway. You can also find a post about it on the feed. Um, Basically, you're going to share that post in hopes of winning a $40 gift card to... Cinemark. Allow me to pay for you and a person of your choosing to go and see a movie. Might I suggest Scream if you haven't already seen it? Um, There's also a new movie with Jennifer Lopez and Owen Wilson that looks like it's going to be like the chick flick of this Valentine's Day. Um, And if you want to wait a little bit longer, you could use your gift card to see The Lost City with my favorite actress, Sandra Bullock. Um, I also like Channing Tatum and Brad Pitt. Um, I'm definitely excited to see that one when it comes up. I'm going to be like first in line. So what are you waiting for? You can enter it while you listen to today's episode and just get it out of the way. Just get it out of the way and enter so that way you can qualify. Make sure you screenshot your story and send it to me in a DM so I know that you did it, especially if your account is private. I want to make sure that I don't miss anyone who enters. Honestly, I think that is it for housekeeping um, besides just that we have a website. Um, It's www.mysterystillunsolved.com. In the future, I plan on doing some fun things with it, but for now, it's a great place to go and binge my now 68 episodes. And oh my gosh, (laughs) I just realized that next week is going to be my 69th episode. Aqua turtle. Um, I guess it's a good thing. It's a month of love and lust. (laughs) Perfect timing, I suppose. 69 dudes. Name that movie. Anyway, I want to move on from that because as we all know, this is a classy and upscale podcast. The podcast of choice for the mature and cultured. (laughs) 
Uh, With that being said, I think it's about time that we started today's episode. So let's dive in. St. Valentine's Day 1929 began like any other cold and wintry morning in the Windy City. That's Chicago. If you didn't know, you uncultured swine. (laughs) A light sprinkling of snow dusted the city street and sidewalks like confectionery sugar on a powdered donut. As you can imagine, bakers and florists had risen early that day in anticipation of the rush of procrastinating men who would arrive at work only to forget that they didn't get anything for their sweethearts or their mistresses. (laughs) Valentine's Day is huge for florists and bakers. It is the holiday It's like the first holiday after the new year that can make or break your I'm going to be healthier this year New Year's resolution. And who can resist a pink frosted cookie in the shape of a heart or a chocolate cake adorned in red and white sprinkles? Uh, I'll tell you who. Nobody. Nobody. Um, You'd have to be a real sociopath to not enjoy the delectable confections of Cupid's Day. Of course... Not everyone was engaged in thoughts of loving kindness on this Valentine's Day. Over at the Cook County Jail, guards were preparing for a midnight execution of three convicted killers. These executions had been on the books for weeks. And inside a humdrum garage only blocks away from that police station at 2122 North Clark Street in a quiet residential town was a meeting of a relatively large number of hoodlums gathered together for reasons unknown. Except for a single light bulb dangling from the ceiling above, the garage was completely dark. The garage was leased by the George Bugs Moran Group, an Irish-American gang which controlled much of the North Side's illegal booze traffic and ran most of the brothels and casinos in the area. The garage was used mostly for storage for the gang and like quick repairs on their cars, not as any sort of hangout or hideout. No, no. There was only one explanation as to why the seven men would be there in this garage at that hour, and it wasn't to exchange Valentine's Day cards. They had a job. With the exception of the mechanic, all the men inside the garage were well-dressed, donned in their best suits, pocket squares, and fedora hats. One of the men had even adorned his lapel with a single red carnation. Remember when men used to dress up? Gangsters wearing flowers? They didn't even feel emasculated. How come men don't take more pride in their appearance today? (laughs) It's incredibly disappointing. I'm not saying I want to go back in time because there were certainly a lot of terrible things going on back in the day. But can we bring the like nice like dressing up back? I wish we could just bring that part back. Um, I have a hard time getting my husband Brian to wear even a sports jacket on a date to a fancy restaurant, let alone get him to put a pocket square or a carnation in his lapel. In the end, it didn't matter how well these men had dressed, as it appears these men had unknowingly dressed up for their own funerals. Yes, soon all seven of these men would be dead. Victims of the most infamous unsolved crime in United States history. But seriously, I feel like I've said that so many times. Like, don't they all claim that? (laughs) It was a crime so notorious, it soon became known as the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And this massacre changed everything. You might be wondering, how did the slaughter of seven men, seven gang members no less, change anything, let alone America as we know it today? Well, it's really quite simple. You can boil it down to one word, actually. Alcohol. Booze. Spirits. The bubbly. So 
As you know, in 1929, we were in the midst of the prohibition, a time when it had become illegal to import, produce, or buy alcoholic beverages within the United States. Because of this law, gangsters were made millionaires overnight. Yeah, people weren't thrilled about the idea of their city being overrun and run by gang leaders, but it was tolerated because people wanted to get their drink on every now and again. However, when the Valentine's Day massacre occurred, photos of the gruesome crime scene made the papers and suddenly it wasn't something that could be forgotten or put out of sight and out of mind. It was very much on Americans' minds now and Americans were not happy. In Florida, the president-elect Herbert Hoover was vacationing with family. When he saw this news in the papers, it was the ammunition that he had been counting on. One of the main platforms of his campaign was that he was going to clean up America, and this was the perfect launching pad to putting his plans into action. If you've heard of this case, then you already know which theory we'll be discussing first. This theory is the one most people believe, although no evidence was ever tied to this individual and no arrests were ever officially made. This person was never even made an official person of interest in the case. Any guesses on who could be the mastermind that they they, they wanted to pin this crime on? Any guesses on who else might have been vacationing in Florida when this St. Valentine's Day massacre occurred? They're all one and the same, Mr. Al Capone. During the years 1924 through 1929, Chicago was a pretty grim place. It was essentially a lawless city as Al Capone and various other smaller gangs had overthrown the city. And it's nice to know that not much has changed since the 1920s. (laughs) I feel like we're just talking about Chicago today. Anyways, Al Capone ran the Five Points Gang, also known as the Capone Gang. One of his rival gangs was, you guessed it, the the George Bugs Moran Gang. Bugs had recently acquired leadership of this gang as Capone had put out a hit on the previous gang leader and had had him shot execution style in the middle of the street. The theory is that Al Capone somehow knew about this small seven-man meeting Um, to finalize the purchase of a stolen case of Canadian whiskey and that he knew when and where this meeting would be taking place and it is believed that Capone ordered a hit and then jetted off to Florida to hopefully evade suspicion. The morning of February 14th, 1929, George Bugs Moran and two of his closest minions were on their way to the meeting when they grew suspicious when they saw a police car circle the block several times. Bugs instructed one of his men to go to the meeting without them and tell them to start without him. Bugs and his other goon went across the street to a cafe and had coffee and eggs, and they just kind of plotted their next move. Like, what are we going to do? The coppers are around. (laughs) Witnesses say that that same morning, they saw two plain-clothed officers speaking with two officers in their police uniforms. A man who was dressed like Bugs in his iconic hat and jacket walked into the garage, and shortly after, the four officers, two in uniform and two not, marched into the building carrying semi-automatic rifles and shotguns. At first, there was silence, but a few minutes later, the sound of rapid gunfire filled the streets. About a minute later, the policemen emerged with two prisoners with their hands up and at gunpoint. So what, right? 
Is that what you're thinking? So what? A police raid with two prisoners doesn't seem too crazy, right? No doubt this was a common occurrence in Chicago. Well, it wasn't exactly as it appeared. For inside laid seven men, each with multiple gunshot wounds. Six were already dead, and the seventh would die just a few short hours later in the hospital. It had been a very one-sided gun battle, as all seven men had not even had a chance to draw their weapons, having been caught totally by surprise. They had been ordered to surrender their guns and line up with their backs to the police with their hands high up on the wall. It was at this point that the seven men were sprayed with machine gun fire and cold blood even as they lay dying on the floor. Two of the men were finished off with four shotgun blasts. It is thought that the two men armed with the submachine guns fired a total of 17 rounds into the backs of these seven men. That's a lot of bullets. Five of the dead were known members of Bugs Moran gang. One was an optometrist, and the last was the mechanic. The mechanic's dog was the only survivor of this incident. From observation, you might not have noticed the two officers in uniform had two prisoners who happened to be the exact same men who had walked into the building with plain clothes on. So what was going on? Some believe that it's common knowledge that this was just another hit by Al Capone. The two officers in uniforms were imposters. All four of the men were just henchmen of the Capone gang. Many believe Capone gang was just vying for power in a protracted turf war between the two gangs. The sole survivor of the massacre, well, besides the puppers, was Frank Gusenberg, a Moran gang enforcer late who lay dying in a hospital bed after being riddled with 14 bullets. When questioned by police about who might be responsible for this, he replied, I don't know what you're talking about. No one shot me. Keeping the code of silence. Not surprisingly, good old Frankie boy died three hours later from his injuries. The actual target of the massacre had been George Bugs Moran himself, but because he listened to his spidey senses and that they were tingling, he luckily missed out on his own demise. Moran would later comment about the attempted assassination and say, quote, only Capone kills like that, end quote. When Al Capone was questioned at his lavish Florida home, he taunted Moran by saying, quote, only Moran kills like that, end quote. Even though Al Capone was never officially tied to the crime, the shocking photos coursed the nation and only added to Capone's reputation and notoriety. However, there are some who believe the full story, the true story of what really happened that St. Valentine's Day when the streets bled red has never been told. This second theory suggests that the crime was almost certainly not the work of the man who was publicly known as Scarface. As it happened, these people believe that the explanation of the massacre may have been much simpler than anyone imagined. It may have been attributable to one of the oldest and surest motives in the book revenge. Some witnesses claim that around 10.30 that morning, a big black Cadillac turned from Webster Avenue onto Clark Street heading south. It stopped in front of the garage. Four or five men got out of the car. One man, the driver, wore a fancy chinchilla top coat and a gray fedora, and there were also two police, two people dressed up in police uniforms. These witnesses claim that the Moran gang didn't seem surprised or frightened to see the new visitors entering their garage, almost as if they had been expecting them. Maybe they knew their guests, or maybe because they saw the two men in uniform, they tried to play it cool. If it was money these crooked cops wanted, then the Moran gang certainly had plenty. But it wasn't about money. 
Out on Clark Street, neighbors heard popping noises, which some took for the sound of a backfiring car engine. Others heard the desperate cries of a dog. A few peered out of their windows in time to see four men leave the garage and pile back into a black Cadillac. The car sped south on Clark Street, zigzagging to avoid an oncoming trolley, and disappeared out of view somewhere around Armitage Ave. Sergeant Thomas J. Loftus, a veteran of the 36th District, responded to the first call. After moving a bunch of neighbors who had gathered, he spotted Frank Gusenberg, the guy who had been shot 14 times but was now still somehow hanging on. The sergeant bent down and asked him, quote, Frank, do you know who I am? End quote. Frank let out a small chuckle, quote, yeah, I know you. You're Tom Loftus, end quote. He paused to cough out blood, then continued, and I'm not going to talk. Loftus continued to press for more details until Frank's bitter end, but never got any. He did get a scolding at the scene from Frank himself, who said, quote, stop asking me questions for God's sake and get me to a freaking hospital. But he didn't say freaking. I'm saying freaking, <laughs> which they did and where he later died. Al Capone might have been Bugs's most famous enemy, but he certainly wasn't his only enemy. One other gang in particular has always piqued the interest of those who study this particular case, the Purple Gang. I like it. This gang is defying gender stereotypes. Yes, guys can like purple too. I support. Uh, the Purple Gang was a gang in Detroit. It was believed that this massacre was all just in retaliation of those cases of booze that had been stolen apparently by the Moran Gang. Apparently, a few members of the gang had rented a room right across the street from the very garage where the seven men were killed, presumably so that they could watch from their room the arrival of Moran's men. Police even considered Moran himself as a potential suspect. Because, like, why didn't he go in, they wondered. Was it possible that he had tired of some of his men's insubordination? Apparently, the Gusenbergs, Frank and his other brother, were some kind of a headache. <laughs> they were always getting into trouble, and Moran may have gotten tired of having to clean up their messes all the time. But why would Moran eliminate his other innocent members of the gang? It just doesn't really add up. A week after the crime, cops found a stripped, burned black Cadillac that they believe was the one used as the getaway vehicle for the massacre. Still, the investigation went nowhere. The lead investigator on the case complained, quote, no one stands out as being important enough to be called the probable cause of the murders, end quote. The only thing Stansberry seemed certain of was that Al Capone had not been involved. It's also important to note that money was not the main motive. Oftentimes with gang killings, it's all about the money. And if it really was a gang member retaliating for their lost product, why didn't they empty the pockets of the men before killing them? The men had tens of thousands of dollars between them, but not a single penny was stolen. This seemed to only confirm that the motive was anger and again, revenge. Hoover, the now president, as we're like kind of fast forwarding a couple of weeks, had been banking on investigators to somehow tie this crime to Capone, because if they could, his plan was to prosecute Capone to the highest degree of the law to essentially prove a point to all other gangbangers in America that this type of illicit behavior and violence would no longer be tolerated in his America. Imagine his surprise when there wasn't a single thing that they could tie back to Capone. 
They tried thinking of all these little loopholes that they could use to arrest Capone. Could they arrest him as for being an accessory? Could they arrest him for perjury? And imagine how embarrassing um, the administration was when just two months later, Capone was arrested in Michigan for carrying an unregistered weapon. Ugh, why hadn't they thought of that? While Capone was in prison, the police in Chicago finally caught what looked like a huge break in the case. On the evening of December 14, 1929, Fred the Killer Burke, a well-known bank robber and hired gun, smashed his car into another near the police station. When a cop came after him, Burke shot the cop in the head, which obviously killed him. Police searched for Burke at his home. Shocker, he wasn't there. Um, But they did find a huge arsenal, including two machine guns, seven revolvers, 11 tear gas canisters, and enough ammunition to support the overthrow of a small government. Ballistic tests proved dramatic results. Burke's machine guns were the same ones used in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, and one of them had even been used in the assassination of a young man named Frankie Yale in New York. After eluding cops for more than a year, Burke was finally arrested and sentenced to life in prison for the murder of a cop. If he ever talked, there is no public record of it. He died in 1940 from a fatal heart attack in prison. It doesn't really make sense why the police would never press charges officially on a man who clearly had something to do with the massacre or knew who might have done it because he had the guns. It's still unsure why police never formally charged him. Um, We can always speculate that perhaps they figured he would already be in prison for the rest of his life, or maybe the cloud of potential guilt would continue to hang over the suspect that they actually wanted it to be, which was Al Capone. Then four years later, a guy named Byron Bolton was in custody. He wanted to make a deal with the Fed, so he started spouting that he knew what really happened that St. Valentine's Day. He named Burke and four other men. Bolton claims that he was a lookout and that Capone had ordered the hit to kill Bugs Moran. Bolton's claims made huge headlines across the nation. However, the details that he claims in his statement never really added up. At least one of the men he identified as one of the killers had a solid alibi because he'd been vacationing in Hawaii with his family at the time. Also, if Capone had ordered a hit on Bugs, how come he never tried to kill him again? Bugs was definitely still alive. It goes without saying that this so-called confession was just a ruse to get some sort of a deal. The third and most intriguing of the theories, to me at least, is a guy named William Three-Fingered White. His cousin Deverne had been shot while eating at his home. Then two men came in, dragged his body out of the house into their car, where they later dumped him in a ditch. White came to visit his cousin during his one-month stay in the hospital, and before Deverne died, he was able to tell his cousin who had done this to him quote, one of the Gusenberg brothers, end quote. Deverne was never really sure which one, but when Deverne eventually succumbed to his injuries, White didn't really care. He would kill any and all of the Gusenberg brothers that he could find. It's believed that White and one of the Gusenberg brothers had worked together previously to steal $80,000 worth of merchandise. This was the kind of in that White needed. 
Some believe he called up the Gusenbergs and asked them to get in on a heist with him. They would talk about it. Oh, I don't know, in person, say at the garage that man that Moran owned. This might explain why the men didn't feel threatened when their visitors finally arrived. Perhaps it was a meeting that they had been anticipating. This theory offers a clear motive, the avenged death of a loved one. This theory holds enough emotional power to explain the fury of the attack and explain why no money was ever stolen. It may even account for why the investigation of the crime didn't go anywhere. Because apparently, Deverne's father was a police sergeant. This is the father of the deceased. Why would a police sergeant want to arrest the men who avenged his son's death? The sergeant may have even been in on it, possibly supplying White with the two official cop uniforms that he needed for the ruse. That would have been enough for the brothers in blue to turn a blind eye on catching these real killers. This also brings us back to some eyewitness testimony that seemed useless at the time, but now might hold some water. Two young men claimed that shortly before the massacre, they had seen a police car full of men. The driver of the police car was missing a finger. Could it have been William Three-Fingered White? Maybe. Especially when it was later found out that White had been a federal paid informant for years, like almost a decade. And if John Edgar Hoover knew of White's role in the massacre, the Federal Bureau might have helped in covering his tracks for fear of losing such a valuable informant. In 1934, White was found out for being a rat and was executed in his home, and the truth may have died with him. Like I said, this crime changed the nation. The nation's simmering resentment towards gangland violence was now at a steady boil. Americans from coast to coast all seemed to agree that this crime had crossed a line. The violence was becoming too much, that this experiment known as prohibition was no longer worth its cost. As for poor Bugsy Moran, the intended victim, all along in the St. Valentine's Day massacre, well, his gang activities were essentially squashed. He never recovered from the St. Valentine's Day Massacre and the loss of some of his top men. Within a few years, he faded into obscurity um, when the alcohol ban was lifted and their only source of income, illegal gambling, was muscled in on by other much stronger gangs. Moran died from lung cancer in 1957 at the age of 63 with not a penny to his name. Now, whether or not the most believed theory is true, that Al Capone himself hired the hit, one thing is crystal clear. Al Capone was surely punished for it. This massacre lit a flame under the butt of federal prosecutors. Capone's imprisonment became a national priority. The U.S. attorney eventually settled on a charge of felony income tax evasion, and Capone ended up winning the stiffest sentence that has ever been handed down for such a crime, 11 years. The punishment proved effective because by the time Capone was released from prison, his mind was so wrecked with syphilis that he couldn't have led a criminal ring even if he wanted to. His power was gone. While he continued to talk to the press about his other endeavors and how he wished he had not been so friendly to the press because it had put a target on his back, he never once mentioned the St. Valentine's Day murders again. Not even once. But I'm curious, what do you make of the St. Valentine's Day massacre? Do you think it was Bugs Moran himself, William Three-Fingered White, the Purple Gang, 
Burke Bolton, Al Capone himself, or any of the others that we discussed on today's episode, let me know on the post I made about it on my Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved. I would love to hear your thoughts, theories, and opinions on this notorious unsolved crime. Don't forget to enter my giveaway. I want to make sure I spoil one of my lucky listeners with a $40 Cinemark gift card for this Valentine's Day. Visit the Instagram this week, February 3rd through the 8th, 2022, just in case you're listening to this like a couple years from now, um, for more details. The giveaway will close on the 8th of February, and I will announce the winner on next week's episode. Do you want to know how to support this podcast? Of course you do. Follow me on Instagram at Mystery Still Unsolved if you aren't already. Visit my website at mysterystillunsolved.com and binge my 68 episodes. Woohoo! Tell a true crime-loving friend or family member about me. Word of mouth is always the best referral. But the best way to support me and this podcast will always be to join me next week when together we'll discover... Did someone ever place a useful tip? Has justice prevailed? Or is the mystery still unsolved?